Thank you for listening to Desert Spring United Methodist Sunday Sermon. We're glad you found us and that you chose to be part of our church. Online listeners, you are a significant part of our church community, and we're grateful you're with us. We hope you enjoy the sermon you're about to hear. If you would like to engage with our staff, we can be found on Facebook, Vimeo, and Instagram. Or call us at 702-256-5933. So today we're continuing in this series of sermons entitled Making Sense of the Bible as we wrestle with a question that many, many of you have asked me over the course of, of my time here. How can it be that God, or the New Testament, is so loving and forgiving and merciful but in the Old Testament can seem so judgmental, even vindictive and violent. Now it's a complicated question and we need to pause for just a moment to, to be clear on something. So we read through the Old Testament about 1%, about 1% of the verses portray God as being judgmental or vindictive or violent. 99% of the passages portray God as good and caring and involved in our lives and in creation like a good shepherd. God is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Likewise, in the New Testament, the majority of the verses portray God as loving, as forgiving, a God of life and of resurrection. But there are also passages in the New Testament that leave us scratching our head, like the story of Ananias and Sapphira who drop over dead or the violence that we see in the book of Revelation. So it's a complicated question that can't be just divided out between Old and New Testaments. But now having said that, most of the passages that people have shared that are concerning to them come from the earlier portion of the Hebrew or of the Old Testament, Hebrew Bible or Old Testament. There seems to be three big concerns that pop up when it comes to the violence of God. One of those has to do with the death penalty and that which warrants the death penalty. We read through the law of Moses and we find out that if you work on the Sabbath, you should be put to death. And if you're blasphemous, you should be put to death. And if you've ever back-talked your parents, you should be put to death. And the list can go on and on of those things that warrants death, but I can stop with three, because that's probably enough for all of us to recognize it's by grace we're still alive. I mean, I, I work on almost every Sabbath, right? And you ever taken the Lord's name in vain? Maybe when you were younger, ever backtalk your parent? Good thing we don't take those verses literally, right? Because none of us would be here. And good thing Jesus once said, you who are without sin cast the first stone. Now a second kind of passage that people find deeply troubling has to do with God's punishment towards people who break God's will and commandments. We're going to be reading a story about that today from the book of Exodus. It's the story of the golden calf. Remember, Moses is up on the mountain of the Lord receiving the law. Down below, the Israelite people grow restless. How are we supposed to worship a God we cannot see? 
And so they convinced Aaron, Moses' brother, to make them a graven image, something that was supposed to represent the unseen God. They convinced Aaron, so he made them a golden calf, and then they bowed down before the golden calf and worshipped this golden calf. And afterward, they threw a big party. They got kind of wild and reckless. They got drunk. False worship never brings about transformation, just saying. Well, meanwhile, up on the mountain, God tells Moses what the people are doing. And you're going to hear the conclusion of that story read in just a moment. A third kind of passage that can be very troubling is the depiction of war that we see, particularly in the book of Joshua, when the Israelite people who are led out of captivity into freedom are now entering into the promised land and occupying that land. And how it is that they go from city-state to city-state among the Canaanites and what it is that they do as they enter. We'll pause here and we'll hear scriptures about both of those kinds of stories. Mike, will you read for us? Yes, Pastor and I discussed before the first scripture this morning and reading and uh, some concerns about it, but then uh, he'll set your minds at ease, I promise that. <laughs> uh, so our, uh, our readings this morning come from Exodus and Joshua. The first one is uh, the book of Exodus, chapter 32, verse 27 through 28. He said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, put your sword on your side, each of you, go back and forth from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill your brother, your friend, and your neighbor. The sons of Levi did as Moses commanded, and about 3,000 of the people fell on that day. And from the book of Joshua, chapter 10, verse 40, so Joshua defeated the whole land the hill country and the Negev, and the lowland and the slopes, and all of their kings. He left no one remaining, but utterly destroyed all that breathed, as the Lord God of Israel commanded. This has been a word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thank you, Mike. So in this series, Making Sense of the Bible, today's sermon about making sense when it comes to the violence of Scripture, for me, is the most difficult of all of the sermons. With that, let's enter into a time of prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable unto thee, O Lord our God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So how do we make sense out of passages like the ones Mike just read? In light of what we know about God through Jesus Christ, who came and showed us that God is a God of love and of mercy and of forgiveness and of second chances, a God of resurrection. How do we make sense out of these stories where we hear God order the execution of 3,000 people or order the Israelites to commit genocide? Well, the first thing that we do not do is use these passages of Scripture to justify violence. We do not use these passages to justify violence. Rather, we get out our colander. Remember this from a few weeks ago, those of you who were here. You all know what this is for, right? Okay, so let's say we made some pasta. 
and the pasta is ready, so you pour it through the colander. The part that you don't want pours on through. The part you want to keep and eat stays in the bowl, right? So as Christians, we pour scriptures through a colander. And the colander that we pour our scriptures through is the colander of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He is the clearest revelation of who God is. And so we look to him to help us to understand the rest of scripture. So we pour the biblical texts through this colander of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus who taught us that God loves us and who summarized all the law by saying, love God, love each other as you love yourself. We pour scriptures through the colander of the law of love. And anything that sticks in the bowl, anything that's consistent with the law of love, we do well to apply to our lives and to let it to help form us. And those things that pour on through that are inconsistent with the law of love, that's what we wrestle with. We don't discard it because it's in the Bible, but we wrestle with it to try to understand it. And so that's what we're going to do with these passages today. We're going to wrestle with them to try to understand them. Now, some Christians would say that when we read that God ordered the death of every man, woman, child, and animal, that that's exactly what happened, that every man, woman, child, and animal was killed. They would say that it's because God is sovereign, and God can do whatever God chooses to do. But can God really do whatever God chooses to do? I mean, we read through all of Scripture how it is that God is holy and God is righteous. God establishes the covenant of Abraham. God establishes a new covenant through Christ Jesus, our Lord, because human beings do whatever they want to do, whatever we want to do, sometimes even perpetrating violence against other people. And in the Old Testament, we hear how our violence grieves God's heart. In the New Testament, we see Jesus stop and weep over Jerusalem if only you knew the things that make for peace. The life and death and resurrection of Jesus and the continuing work of the Holy Spirit in our lives is purifying us, making us pure, righteous, and holy so that one day we can stand before the pure, righteous, and holy God. So God never acts in a way inconsistent with God's nature. That would be sin. God never acts in a way inconsistent with God's nature. And we hear through Jesus that God's nature is one of love. Some Christians would say that the reason that all the Canaanites got wiped out was because they were really, really bad people and they deserved it. But we read in the New Testament how all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and how the wages of sin is death. And... In the Old Testament, the story of Jonah, we hear about the Ninevites and that they're really, really bad people. 
So bad that when God asks Jonah to go to Nineveh to give them a message, Jonah wants nothing to do with them. Instead, he hops on a ship and he heads in exactly the opposite direction. But God is relentless. God refuses to give up on the Ninevites. And so after a little detour in the belly of a giant fish, Jonah arrives in Nineveh. He gives them the message. They hear the word of God. They are convicted and they repent and they are saved. And that ticks Jonah off because they're bad people. They deserve to be punished. And remember what God says to Jonah then? But they're human beings that I created. I care for them. Some Christians would say that the reason that the Canaanites had to be wiped out from the promised land was so that the promised land could be purged of any Idol, idolatry, idol worship, so that the Israelite people would not give in to the temptation of worshiping other gods. But if that was the reason why they were wiped out, then the plan did not work. Because no sooner than everybody's wiped out and the Israelites occupy the land, than they start worshiping other gods, even the Canaanite gods, which actually brings about an interesting question. If, jo if Joshua and the Israelite people killed every man, woman, and child of the Canaanite people, then how come the Canaanites keep showing up in the story after that? <laughs> Soon after that, they're showing up. And the Israelite people keep giving in to the temptation to worship their gods. Why? Well, the answer to this question helps us to start to make sense of this passage of scripture that formulate formulaic statement kill every man woman child and animal was hyperbole it was an over exaggeration in order to make a very specific point and the specific point was not how many people were going to be killed the specific point had to do with establishing a region dedicating it to Almighty God. That's what was happening in that statement. It was a way of the Israelite people saying, this land now belongs to you, God. It's dedicated to you, sacrificed to you. But we remember God does not accept human sacrifices. Remember the story of Abraham and Isaac and how God refused to accept a human sacrifice? The sacrifice God wants, Isaiah says, is a contrite heart. So this passage, it has nothing to do with genocide. It has to do with a region being dedicated to Almighty God. How do we know this to be true? Well, archaeologists found something that dates back about to the 8th century before Christ. This stone, the Moabite stone, has engravings on it. And when you read it, it's a king of another nation that says that his people had marched into a city-state of Israel and they killed every man, woman, child, and animal and then dedicated that place to their God. It is the way people spoke about victory. It is the way that people spoke about setting aside a particular piece of a particular region for their God. And it has nothing to do with wiping out a people.
Now, that doesn't make sense of the whole thing. It just gets us thinking a little bit about what's really going on in the passage. But let's turn our attention now to this passage from Exodus, the story of the golden calf. So Moses is up receiving the law from God. Down below, the Israelites grow restless. They convince Aaron to make them an idol that they can worship. Aaron makes them a golden calf. They bow down before the golden calf and worship, and then they throw a big party, and they get wild and reckless, and they get drunk. And meanwhile, God sees what's going on down below, reports that to Moses, and then we hear that God is so disappointed, so upset over what's happened, that God has decided to wipe out all of those people. Moses then starts arguing with God, saying, you didn't lead these people out of slavery in order to kill them in the desert. And so God relinquishes. God says, okay, I will not kill them. Then Moses picks up the tablets containing the law, heads down the mountain. As soon as Moses sees the people, Moses drops the tablets, and he gets so upset, he calls the Levites together, and he orders them to go and to execute their friends, their family members, saying that it was God's will. But was this story about God, or was it about Moses? Now, before we answer that question, it's important to recognize that when we're reading the Bible, Sometimes we read stories about God and what God wills for people, like the Ninevites and how God willed for their salvation. Sometimes we read stories about people doing the wrong thing and suffering their consequences, like the story of the golden calf. Sometimes we read stories about people who are doing the wrong thing, but they think they are doing the right thing, and they justify what they are doing by pinning it on God. Let me say that again. Sometimes we read stories where people think they're, people are doing the wrong thing, but they think they're doing the right thing, and they justify what they're doing by pinning it on God. The story of Job his two friends, or his friends, arguing with Job about why he's in that condition, speaking on behalf of God, only to find out at the very end of the story that they got it wrong. God says that they did not speak for God. Job was the one who was getting it right. Or the story in the New Testament of the religious leaders who have Jesus arrested and ultimately crucified. Their charge against him was blasphemy. And we already heard how in the law of Moses, the penalty for blasphemy was death. They thought they were doing the right thing, justifying their actions by pinning it on God. But it was the wrong thing. As Jesus hangs on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Sometimes... People do the wrong thing, but think they're doing the right thing and justify it by pinning responsibility on God. We see those stories throughout the biblical accounts. So when it comes to this story, is that another one of these? Is it another one of those kinds of stories? Before we go any further, let me ask a question in a different way. 
We see in Joshua, God ordering genocide. But we see in 1 John that God is love. So who changed? God or human beings? Who changed? Was God once judgmental, vindictive, and violent, but then somehow God changed and became loving and merciful and compassionate? Or did human beings change in their understanding of God and what God wills for human life? Well, God doesn't change. Genesis chapter 1, we hear that God created us in God's image. Instead of us, we are good. God is good. God is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Throughout the, the biblical narrative, we hear about a God of love, a God of compassion. God is unchanging. But as we read through the Bible, we hear all kinds of stories of human beings growing in their understanding of what God wanted for their life. Jeremiah, the prophet, foresaw a day when, when God would give us a new covenant, not like the old one, he says, the one that we kept getting wrong. Instead, a new one that would be written on our heart. Maybe then we'd get it right. Jesus, he's the clearest revelation of who God is. We look to him to help us to understand who God is and what how our life is supposed to be lived. And in Jesus, we see something more than we would see without him. We only see dimly now what one day we'll see face to face. St. Paul said, we grow in our understanding of God and of God's will for our lives. Jesus once said, you heard it said this, but now I say unto you. In other words, you heard it this way and you got it wrong. So let me tell you the right way. Throughout the scriptures, we hear human beings growing in their understanding of God's will and of who God is in our lives. Now, I could preach for, you know, for five weeks on this subject and still not resolve all the tension in it. It is just a difficult, difficult subject to talk about. But having wrestled with it a little bit, an important question to ask is why are these stories even contained in the Bible? I mean, what value do they have to us? How can they be useful to our own lives? Can they be? I think of the story of the golden calf and how easy it is for us to bow down to false idols. Even when we think that we're worshiping Almighty God, that God is first in our lives, it's so easy for us to live our lives as if something else is of even greater value to us than our relationship with God. Maybe it's money, maybe it's family. But when something else is of first concern to us in our lives, it doesn't take too long until life stops working so well. And pretty soon there's some pain and there's some brokenness that enters in. That pain and brokenness, it may even be inflicted upon people that we most love. The story of the golden calf, it stays in the bowl. And then there's the story of Joshua, the Jericho walls. And I think of, of my own life and those walls that I might still have built up within me, those places that I don't want to let God into not yet. 
And maybe it's time for a little marching and a little praying and a little praising to make those walls start to come down, to crumble down, so that God can enter into those places of brokenness and of prejudice and of sin and to do something with it. And I think of how in that story God saves Rahab the prostitute how God can even use the brokenness of my own life to bring about some kind of blessing to somebody else's life. And the story, it can stay inside of the bowl. You know, I love the Bible. When we pour it through the colander of the law of love, the words, they become life-giving, life-transforming. They come to help us understand the fullness of what it means for God to have said, you are my beloved child with whom I am well pleased. Thanks be to God. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Desert Spring United Methodist Church. New sermons are posted weekly. Follow us.